0: You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed.
1: In the name of Allah, the gracious the merciful, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the breakfast show of The Voice of Salah with uh, uh, Imam Tukir and myself, Walid Um The time is three minutes past seven. It's Friday, the 13th of October, 2023. Uh, we have, once again, uh, an interesting program uh, for our listeners, uh, It is an interactive broadcast, The Breakfast Show, so it means that those who wish to uh, take the opportunity to contact us and share their views and opinions are welcome to do so. All you need to do is to pick up the phone Dial 0208-687-7878. i repeat the number again. It's zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. If you want to share your views on air, then please do dial that number, and our technicians will put you through. Um, alternatively, you can use the more modern method of uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, and post uh, your uh, views uh, on that. Uh, the handle is Voice of Islam UK. In um, a few minutes' time, we'll begin with a rundown of the weather, before going on to examine some of the news and stories that are circulating uh, around in the wider media, as well as uh, in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, and uh, those who are familiar with the show will also know that we tend to look at two uh, stories in much greater detail. Uh, today, uh, our first topic is to do with spiritual health of the nation. Apparently, surveys seem to be indicating that we are no longer a religious country, let alone a Christian one. So, we'll be examining this particular uh, aspect under the title "Decline in Faith and Belief." Is there still a ray of hope? That's our first topic: a decline in faith and belief. Is there still a ray of hope? And we'll be talking to Dr. Dawn Llewellyn to understand this topic better. Uh, Dr. Llewellyn is an Associate Professor of Religion and Gender at the University of Chester. So that's something that we have in store for our listeners between around about 7.20 and uh, 8.15. So if you're interested in that topic, do make a point of remaining tuned in during that portion of the show. Uh, moving on to a second top, main topic, we'll be looking at what is increasingly becoming a scourge of society, and that is addiction. Uh, this comes in all forms, such as substance abuse, gambling, gaming, and so on. So we'll be examining the heart of this problem through the topic Dopamine Rush, Exploring the Neurobiology of Addiction. Dopamine r- Rush... Exploring the Neurobiology of Addiction, we'll be addressing this topic with the help of Dr. Brian Singer. Uh, and Dr. Brian Singer is a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of Sussex. And uh, we will no doubt, during the course of this program, also be bringing you the, um, uh, the religious angle to this, the Islamic standpoint to all this, and that will be uh, given first and foremost by uh, our resident imam, Imam Tokheer Tanmeer Khan, and so without further ado, uh, let me pass the mic on to him to uh, uh, give us the weather and uh, some of the news stories that are circulating around in the, in the media.
0: How's Well, How are you doing today, this morning?
1: Oh yeah, not too bad. Alhamdulillah. Enjoying this this sunny weather that we are having in recent days. A strange, uh, strange autumn, isn't it? I mean, we didn't have, to, didn't expect temperatures this high.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, it didn't feel like autumn, to be honest. No. It uh, felt like we were still having the uh, last few glimpses of summer. Yes. Um... About I remember maybe 10 years back, uh, when I was studying at the Institute of Jamian, the UK, we, mm. we had the hottest weather in October. Um, so I, I've seen it, it rarely happens, but sometimes during the month of uh, October, there is still uh, last few spots of uh, mm. sunshine. And the, the weather forecast, as you mentioned, uh, today is unsettled uh, with strong winds for many and uh, heavy rain will slowly clear to the southeast later and sunny spells and showers further to the north and cloudier with brisk winds from the northwest. And the forecast for tonight is that rain clearing uh, the southeast this evening. Uh, otherwise, uh, there will be largely clear skies and cloudy with gales in the far north, with showers um, for northern and western areas. So that is the the weather forecast. And I mean, if we do look uh, throughout this week, uh, it is saying on Sunday it will be uh, it will be quite sunny. Actually, it will go up to 15, 11 degrees, the highest in London. Um, uh, but generally. Today uh, it will be a lot of showers, uh, so that is the weather forecast for today.
1: Okay, so it's wet.
0: Yeah, it'll be it'll be very rainy, mm-hmm. wet okay. and rainy today. So
1: umbrella weather.
0: Umbrella weather, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, how how was the um the Muslim Elders Association? Uh, uh, how was the event for you last week?
1: Um, very interesting. Um, very varied. And I think they've taken a leaf from uh, the, what uh, the youth have done you know, when they are uh, organizing this kind of event, where they're having um, not one set of activities taking place uh, at any given time, but a number of activities taking place at the same time, um, which is which is good because I think uh, it allows people to enjoy the uh, weekend. Uh, in ways that um, uh, they prefer having be able to select what they want mm. to or uh, mm. how they want to participate um, in what is taking place. Um, not good for some. I, I, I had a speech to make. And <laughs> unfortunately, well, people were there. It's not that the hall was full but they were doing other things. So, <laughs> so that was a bit um, uh, demoralizing, but uh, uh, only a bit. Uh, um, but otherwise, um, uh, I think it was um, a very success. I mean, for the for the uh, participants, the highlight, of course, was mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, address by His Holiness that took place on Sunday, late Sunday afternoon. So that was quite inspiring, and uh, um, it was, uh, I think. Um, um, a very successful event from many, many different points of view, so uh, a good event overall. But I, I think the other thing is also that um, uh, as far as venues are concerned, uh, this particular venue, the uh, Battlefield Complex, even for, <coughs> for this kind of event, for something like three and a half thousand, four thousand people, I think is, is too small. And Mm -hmm. perhaps we should take another leaf from Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, youth uh, book of of doing these kind of functions is try to perhaps organize it in Kingsley Mm. uh, next year. But uh, we'll see what uh, what transpires.
0: Uh, Yeah, I did attend (coughs) on Sunday as well Uh Um, as uh, the the youth members. um, We had our meeting over here on Sunday. Uh Um, So we attended that and after after the meeting then we went to listen to his the address of his holiness um so it was it was nice seeing uh, all the members of the Ahmadi Muslim Abbas association uh, just uh, how they how they work together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, uh, okay. So, so you, that, that was uh, the, nice was to see. Was it amusing? Was it
1: to see how they <laughs> they tottering about? <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Um, I was surprised actually. The weather was uh, really good on on yes. a sun, Sunday. Yes. Was uh, very very nice. Yes. Um, so that was very good, and uh, I, I liked how throughout the sermon, His Holiness also highlighted the aspect of prayer itself. Hmm. Um, and uh, I remember His Holiness He mentioned one point that uh, in the Holy Quran Allah the Almighty states that in the name of Allah the Krishna that uh, good works or prayers drive away evil and uh, also at one instant God Almighty states that prayer saves one from indecency and manifest evil. However, despite this, we observe that there are people who observe prayer yet still indulge in evil deeds. And the response of this is that they observe prayer, but not in its true spirit, nor with pity. They only perform useless movements in the form of a custom and habit, and the soul is dead. Allah the exalted has not described this as Hasanat as good work, so um point of fact is that when we are praying as well we we should make sure that is it is with sincerity uh, it is with sincerity of the heart um as this is what is accepted in the eyes of Allah the Almighty so that is one one particular point is Holiness mentioned at the at the, at the concluding. Uh, address at the MD Muslim Audits Association Um, and I want to also read out the statement uh, of his holiness on the recent escalation in the Israeli and Palestinian conflict so the following statement is published according to the guidance uh, that the world head of the MD Muslim community that he has given and uh, the statement uh, is that over the past few days, hundreds of Israels and Palestinians, including women, children, the elderly, they have been killed or injured as a result of senseless violence and bloodshed. And the killing or harming of innocent civilians is a direct violation of the teachings of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings be upon him, who has told that even in a state of warfare, no women child or elder uh, should be targeted or harmed in any way nor should any religious leader or place of worship be attacked and the amdi muslim community extend its deepest sympathies and prayers to all those who have been left breathed or affected in any way our hearts go out to all of them and we pray and urge for an immediate end to hostilities and for peace to prevail so that no one lives, lives, lives are no, no more lives are lost. For that, it is necessary that the channels of communication between the relevant parties and nations remain open until a ceasefire occurs. Any military action taken must ensure that civilians do not come to any harm. Furthermore, Muslim countries within the the region should unite in an effort to establish peace to ensure that the rise of those innocent Palestinian people who have no links with extremism are protected. And we urge the United States and the other influential nations to abstain from any action or statement that may further inflame the volatile situation. Instead, alongside the relevant international organizations, they should make every possible effort to urgently De-escalate the conflict and ensure peace as soon as possible Justice and equity uh, are of paramount importance in achieving and lasting sustainable peace Thus all the major powers must focus on establishing long-term and sustainable peace Based upon the principles of fairness and true justice So thus the statement uh, which has been given on the guidance of His Holiness Um, And uh, certainly it is very upsetting to see the scenes as well of uh, both women, children, you know, the vulnerable people as well who are being affected as well and our thoughts and prayers uh, go out to all of the victims.
1: Well, thank you for that. Um, And that, of course, was the main story that was uh, circulating and dominating our news media Um, But there have been other stories as well and um, so I think uh, one of them is uh, concerning the uh, uh, certain uh, rising in crime or rise in crime that is taking place in the UK recently, shoplifting for example. Uh, has soared this year by an estimated of 25 percent, according to the Office of National Statistics. Uh, in the uh, 12 months to March, police recorded 339,206 cases. Uh, but uh, the uh, British Rail consortium, oh, sorry, British Retail Consortium. Uh, have estimated that there were uh, 8 million incidents, which it says cost retailers nearly £1 billion per year. Uh, legislation in uh, uh, advising officers to close cases with a fine fine rather than uh, investigate them uh, has not been received very well because as a result, police have been accused of decriminalizing shoplifting and organized crime gangs are having a field day. Uh, Last month, the uh, co-op said it was introducing dummy products and empty display packaging to deter bulk theft by organizing gangs. Um, The uh, retail recorded 35% rise in shoplifting in the first six months of the year, which it attributed to criminals stealing goods, en mass by sweeping them into rucksacks, suitcases, or wheelie bins. Uh, amazing uh, the, uh, the um, what is it the uh, the way that uh, some people are going about uh, with this kind of theft uh, uh, without feeling any sense of uh, guilt or remorse or fear, but doing it uh, all the t- uh, all the uh, all, uh, doing it all the more nevertheless. Um The other um, story that uh, was quite uh, interesting that came to... uh, was also published, I think, in The Times recently is about ageing and uh, the relationship with ageing to renting. Uh, Now, this is a study that uh, was led by the University of Essex and the University of Adelaide. Now, they concluded that renting in the private sector... Had a greater impact than unemployment on speeding up aging. In other words, you get uh, you get older faster if uh, you you're renting. Uh, in fact, you get older faster if you're unemployed, but even faster if you're renting. That this appears um, because owning your own home is less stressful than uh, renting, and it appears renting is more stressful than being unemployed. Now the study. Uh, How it um, determined ageing was when it looked at blood samples from 1,420 adults participating in the UK household longitudinal study which collects data on housing over several years. They measured uh, levels of certain chemicals in the blood that indicate DNA changes showing someone's biological age, meaning the decline in functioning of the body's tissues and cells irrespective of a person's actual age. Now, those who lived in rental accommodation were found to have aged much faster than those who owned their own properties. And those who were living in rented accommodation with damp pollution, leaking roofs, overcrowding or rent arrears were found to have aged even faster. Now, the lead author of the study, Dr. Amy Clare, said DNA methylation, which is biological aging, DNA methylation is, is reversible, suggesting that improving or changing the conditions for people with faster biological aging can correct this and health effects be mitigated or reversed. Therefore, housing policy changes can improve health. So that's a conclusion, and that's the study's conclusion, at least one of them. In England and Wales, less than two-thirds of households own their own homes. Nine million rent compared to 15.15 million who own. The report concluded, importantly, the impact of private renting is greater than the impact of experiencing unemployment or being a former spoker. Or never a smoker, So, as, well as banking smoking can also influence aging uh, and accelerate it. But um, and, and that is also a factor. But it seems that this predictive study was focusing its attention on 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 accommodation and renting as opposed to owning, and that's what it came up with. Um, as far as uh, sports are con- is concerned, well, uh, the uh, Uh, cricket World Cup is on, Um, so we've had recently some uh, um, amazing results. One of them was yesterday when uh, I think Australia were really trounced uh, and emphatically beaten by South Africa. Um, Afghanistan did quite well in their first match from what I remember, but they lost uh, recently to India. in football we've got the european championship uh, in england and wales Uh, england in the uk and ireland and this is following the uh, this is by the way the 2028 euros Uh, this is the following the putting out of of uh, turkey from bidding to hold the the event Uh, and it has meant that uh, the uk and ireland will be host to this tournament Uh, it'll be the third time and the tournament will be hosted in england Uh, who previously hosted the 1996 tournament and had matches of the 2020 uh, tournament in London. It will also be the second time that tournament has been hosted in Scotland, who also had matches of the 2020 tournament in Glasgow, as well as the first time it will be hosted in Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and Wales. Uh, So three firsts and then a couple of seconds and one. Third. Anyway, England will be hosting 28 matches with Wales, Ireland and Scotland, six each, while Northern Ireland will be hosting five. Uh, normally, host nations have an automatic place in the tournament, but England have said that they want to get there on merit through qualification. That's how they make it. Uh, probably make uh, and They will not have much problem in doing so, at least on paper it seems that way. Um, the other four... Uh, will be good enough to join them uh, through through this process, that is the qualification process. Um, it is suggested that UEFA uh, will uh, reserve two places, and if any of the home nations or, uh, or Ireland fail to qualify, the best two will be given uh, these to participate in the tournament. And uh, ha- there's a number of other stories that are related to this. One is regarding Harry Kane, who says he wants to participate and he hopes to be participating in it. Uh, he'll be 34, 35 uh, then and um, he's quoting the examples of I think um, uh, other uh, footballers who have uh, uh, remained in good uh, good uh, shape even in their mid-30s people like Ronaldo, Messi, Lewandowski, Ibrahimovic, Ibrahimovic uh, are the names that he was mentioning uh, that they uh, were more mature and better players in the mid thirties than they were when uh, they started, and that's what he hopes to be and uh, when the time for the Euro twenty twenty eight uh, comes up. And uh, he hopes to be participating and representing his country. Then we'll see how that transpires. Anyway, or oh, anything else, uh, uh I
0: haven't actually been uh, following, uh, you know, the cricket World Cup, but. Uh Pakistan actually they've been doing really well. They they won their last match against uh, Sri Lanka. Um, uh, Three hundred and forty four uh, was the target to chase, and mm-hmm. uh, Pakistan uh, won by six wickets and uh, ten balls left. And the next figures mm. show that tomorrow it will be India versus Pakistan again.
1: It's said to be the most watched uh, event uh, over the world. So my one of my um, one of our presenters keeps on telling me that uh, that is the most uh, is the most uh, what is it? Um, yes, it's the, the 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 most number of people watch this sporting event than any other event. This particular match between India and Pakistan, because of. <laughs> Because of uh, the well the population there I mean in India is uh, is quite uh, quite large mm. and also because of the diaspora all over the world of uh, uh, people who um, uh, originate from the Indian subcontinent mm. many of them here in Canada, United States, and elsewhere so yeah, what time is that pretty much are you going to be watching it
0: so i I'm I, thinking of uh, watching this actually mm-hmm. it's saying the you start uh, so, view, viewers in the UK, we can start watching it from three thirty in the morning.
1: I'll start. <laughs> okay.
0: So, sorry, so yeah, ni- nine 9.30. 9.30 nine thirty. Nine thirty. Nine thirty in the morning.
1: Oh well, that's uh, that's before you get up, isn't it? <laughs> 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 but anyway, it'll be. Um, um, I think um, yes. Um, um, India are a very strong team I think um,
0: Recently they've been very strong and mm-hmm. uh, if, if you if you uh, I watched the Asia Cup which was before this mm-hmm. and um, India actually played really good against Pakistan as well so uh, it would be good to see how they do against um, Pakistan here but another thing to remember is that this is a home advantage as well to India yeah. because the, the match is are all happening in India. Mm, mm. Um, is this, so, where,
1: where is this? Where, Ahmedabad?
0: So this particular one is going to be taken in Ahmedabad, yes. Ah, oh, yeah,
1: okay. So, well, India favors. we we'll see. But uh, it doesn't mean that they're bound to win. It could be the other way around, but we'll see how that uh, unfolds. So that's 9.30 in the morning on Saturday. Yep. Okay. Right, uh, moving on... Uh, we um, Let's address the um, main topic, or the first of our main topics that we're going to be uh, focusing our attention on. It's a decline in faith and belief. Is there still a ray of hope? Uh, something we picked up from the Review of Religions. And I suppose this article is based on, on certain surveys uh, and studies that have been uh, taking place that um, have examined the... Um, the uh, spiritual health, if I can put it that way, of the nation. And uh, the um, results are are, uh, interesting, maybe concerning, some people will say, worrying. The proportion of uh, people in England and Wales identifying as Christian has dropped below 50% for the first time. Less than half of the population, 46.2%, describe themselves as Christian, Uh, A 13.1% point uh, decrease from 59.3% in 2011. So that's something that has changed uh, over this span, 10, uh, 11 years. The uh, percentage of people saying they had no religion jumped from around a quarter in uh, 2011 to over a third in 2021. So 25.2% in 2011 and in 2021 uh, 37.2%. So it's a jump, so it seems that those people who are being, how can you say, disillusioned or leaving Christianity are moving on to the camp of uh, no religion. Uh, While the UK uh, has a state religion, the Church of England and the head of the state, the British monarch is also supreme governor of the Church of England. The Archbishop of York is quoted as saying that the country had left behind the era when many people almost automatically identified as Christian. Uh, Stephen Cottrell said, it's not uh, a great surprise. That the census shows fewer people in this country identifying as Christian than in the past. Professor Andrew Davies of the University of Birmingham expressed similar views. There was a time, he says, when to be British meant to be Christian, when you were almost automatically listed as Church of England on hospital admission forms unless he specifically provided another identifier. Uh, Those days are certainly long gone. It's now entirely socially acceptable for Brits to say that they have no religious commitment without them being thought of as, in the same way, morally deficient or excluded from opportunities in public life. Um, As much as um, some people... Especially practicing Christians may have been shocked at the uh, release of these statistics, but it should not have come as, as such a surprise for many, including uh, myself. That this is uh, 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 somebody, this is Andrew Davies is talking, um, including myself, um, because uh, a former, um, because I'm. A former practicing Christian who accepted Islam as my religion in the 1980s, historians agree that in the late 1940s, Britain was a predominantly Christian nation with its religious religi- religiosity reformed by by the wartime experience. Peter F- Forster found that in answering uh, pollsters, the English reported an overwhelmingly belief. In the truth of Christianity, a high respect for it and a strong association between it and moral behavior. As um, we will be speaking to uh, uh, Don Devellin, um, Associate Professor, uh, shortly regarding this uh, particular topic. But uh, as uh, the years have progressed, it seems that the uh, nation's social and secular habits. Uh, all, all the necessities of uh, life uh, became more abundant and affordable. And as this happened uh, with the progression of time, um, the attitudes have changed. Television adverts played a big role in drawing people's attention to a materialistic lifestyle and creating desires for a better life and more luxuries. And as the social life... Uh, moved up to gear, the spiritual life of the ordinary man seemed to be left behind. Missionaries continued their activities in Africa and Asian countries, but not in their own Western countries at a time when they were needed uh, the most. So much so that uh, by the time the 1960s arrived, a social, economic, and moral trend began the erosion of the Christian teachings. In the mid uh, to late 1960s, so-called popular music spread like wildfire, and some of the musicians became pop idols and worshipped by their adoring fans. And more and more people were able to purchase cars and go to foreign holidays. Uh, Americans placed a man on the moon in the late 60s. That was just like beginning of an expansion in technology that drew young people to to the emerging wonders of the computers and later the internet. Unfortunately, with the environment of materialism, religion, and spirituality started to deteriorate at a face uh, a pace. Um, as mainstream advanced, so did the need for way, ways to satiate people's desires and passions. By the 1970s, alcohol and drug abuse became, or should I say drug use first, and then abuse, became widespread. Drug and alcohol related crimes increased. More, moreover, people's health also deteriorated because of alcohol and drug abuse. The uh, cancerous growth of immorality was festering as many magazines and other publications as well as television and the cinema portrayed nudity, sexuality, explicit settings. So called soft pornography was generally thought to be a harmless form of pleasure. The number of sexual offenses and child abuse cases uh, began to increase. The revolution in attitudes has had many different uh, causes and has aroused many moral responses. Uh, up to the 1950s, divorce was looked upon as a distaste, distasteful uh, a stigma, and not in keeping with Christian tradition. Uh, during the marriage ceremony, a couple pledged before God that they would honor each other and that only death would part them. The rate of divorce now in this country is on the increase and the custom of marriage is rapidly abating as couples now consider themselves as partners without the need of wedlock, religious or otherwise. British social and political historian Brian Harrison reports that the forces of secularization grew rapidly and by the 1990s Protestantism cast a thin shadow of its 1945 strength. Compared to Western Europe, Britain stood at the lower end of attendance at religious services and at the top in people claiming no religion. While 80% of Britons in 1950 said they were Christians, uh, only 64% uh, percent did so in uh, in uh, 2000. So there's other um, um, information and uh, details that have also been provided, uh, uh, especially by British, uh, by Brian Harrison, Uh, now he's a historian. He says that uh, by every measure, number of churches, number of parish clergy, churches, and it's today uh, communicants, uh, number of church marriages, membership of uh, proportion uh, of the adult uh, population, the Church of England was in decline after 1970. In 1985, there were only half as many parish clergy as in 1900. The recent 2021 census follows a YouGov Christianity study in the UK from 27th to uh, 30th November 2020, and the survey was carried out online. The figures have been weighted and are representative of all UK adults, that is, those who are uh, 16 or older. Some of the facts to emerge from the study are 28% of Britons believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Uh, 41% I would say that Jesus um, was a historical figure and uh, 15% think he was a fictional figure. I find out very interesting. Um, so, so there are more people who say that Jesus was a historical figure uh, rather than believe that uh, he was the son of God. Um, 28% only uh, adhere to that that view. 27% of Britons say that they believe in a God, while 41% neither believe in a God nor in a higher power. Uh, 52% consider the story of the birth of Jesus to be historically inaccurate while 31% think it's accurate. Among British Christians, 27% say they don't believe in the accuracy of the Christmas story. Only 27%. Um, 4% of Britons who celebrate Christmas do so in a religious manner, while for 61% it is a completely secular, secular event. Right, so that's again very interesting. Four percent celebrate Christ, uh, Christmas in a in a religious manner, yet thirty one percent think uh, the story of his birth is accurate. So that's uh, that's a very interesting um, thought, an interesting uh, find. Um, anyway, we have. Um, uh, We have Dawn, Professor Dawn Llewellyn with us. Uh, Very pleased to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us, uh, Professor.
2: That's fine, thank you. It's really lovely to be here and please just call me.
1: Good morning, Professor.
2: (laughs) Good good morning. Can you Uh, hear me okay? I
1: can hear you now. Thank you very much for coming on. Please
2: just call me Dawn.
1: Oh, thank you. (laughs) Right. Uh, Don, what are um, some of the? I mean, we're discussing this uh, topic about decline in faith and belief, and this is uh, uh, following certain surveys that have been carried out that indicate that. Um, what do you think are the possible reasons for the decline in religious faith in modern society?
2: Thank you. It is a really interesting question. So it's really interesting to think about what we mean by decline and certainly some of the statistics that you just mentioned and some of the patterns that we um, heard about from the last census seem to suggest that certainly for Christianity uh, people aren't identifying as Christian in the same way. So in the last census uh, the Christian people who self-named as Christian dropped from 59.3% in the last census, to 46.2% in the most recent census. Mm-hmm. But decline is complex. So if we're fo- if, if focusing on that, scholars of religion have been thinking for a long time about why that move might be happening. So we can think about processes of secularization. The idea that the, the more modern a society becomes, I'm so sorry, the feedback's so bad on the line <laughs>
1: oh dear uh, um i I'm, I'm sorry all I'm about hearing that. Is myself <laughs> okay no, no, we can hear you very very clearly uh right. yes, yeah, so okay. what's been broadcast <laughs> seems to be very clear
2: um the secularization the more modern a society becomes, the less religion becomes important in the public sphere, whether that be in legislation, whether that be in schools um our our, our public our public services, and individually um scholars also say that pluralism, globalisation, the rise of science and, and technology, which give us new answers or to questions that religion used to provide. And there has been a suggestion that uh, in the modern era and the contemporary world, we are more attuned to how we understand meaning and how we understand morals and values rather than listening to external external authorities who are trying to tell us and give us those expectations. Thank you, the line's much better. Um, So there's all sorts of reasons. But when we think about the way in which this, this sort of declining Christianity is happening, that's most likely down to generational change. For the past couple of generations, we've seen parents who are raising their children aren't doing it with reference to religion. So uh, people who were born in the 50s and 60s, the baby boomer generation, they were less inclined to go to church. So they're less inclined to take their children to religious services, to use Sunday school, to read the Bible in the home. And therefore, uh, that socialization doesn't happen. And therefore, when those children have children, uh, again, there's there's a more of a distance. There's less of a connection to those Christian institutions and those values. And the reason that baby boomers um, following generations are thought to be less inclined to attend religion, think about Christmas in the way that you suggested uh, in your opening remarks, is because it feels like the Christian church is behind in cultural values, um, whether it comes to gender or um, same-sex marriage or whether it comes to women bishops. Um, There's a mistrust of religious institutions, maybe through some of the scandals we've seen um, highlighted recently, so there's a little bit of mistrust and a feeling that this church doesn't represent who I am, it doesn't represent contemporary cultural values. So that's some of the reasons why we might see or might think there's a religious decline, but it's also really interesting that when you're talking about Christianity, there's a sense that you think, oh, well, no one's identifying as Christian in Britain anymore. But of course, in the last census, we saw that there were other groups who were increasing their religious identity so, uh, or their religious numbers. So, for example, shamanism rose from 650 in the last census to 8,000 this time round, And there was an increase in Muslim and Hindu and uh, Sikh identities. So it's a mixed picture.
1: Right. Um, do you think um, um, the um, church should be doing more in making its teachings relevant uh, to people who are attracted by secularism, instead of um, instead of changing uh, their stance on certain uh, certain values that would uh, be more acceptable uh, to people? Um, mm-hmm. So, um, what I'm trying to say is, rather than compromising its position to um, persuade those people who are influenced by secularism to to change their position,
2: I think religious leaders have a very difficult position when it comes to balancing out the values and opinions and the uh, the teachings of, of of their particular community, and thinking about how that continues to to be relevant. But there are um, I think, I think the decline in religion can mean that some communities might be worried about numbers and they might be worried about um, the, their, their religion uh, and their traditions and their teachings and their ways of life uh, being preserved and being passed on. I can understand how that might feel risky. but. Um, if we're not playing the numbers game, then maybe the role of religious leaders, and I'm not a religious leader and I'm not a person of faith, but but for me, when I see good practice around how religious leaders are thinking through their own position, I think about the way in which uh, those exercises in listening take place and where there is an open dialogue between uh, religious people uh, and people of, of no religion and people of Um, uh, different religious uh, expressions. And I think about sort of uh, practices like chaplains, actually. I think chaplains in hospitals and in our prisons and in our schools are often working uh, with a great array of religious identities and religious practices. And multi-faith chaplaincy teams are working together to try and best serve the needs of the community. And I think that's a really good indication of a good practice. Um, where we're not thinking about I'm going to re- defend this position, but let's let's serve the needs of, of the of the people around us and the communities that we live in.
1: I see. So you're talking about the pastoral pastoral work that uh, the that, church yeah. does. Okay. Yeah, right. but
2: I think but I think mm. that's leadership too. Mm. Mm. I think that is leadership, and I think mm. that's a really good practice where religious people are have. It's about religious literacy, isn't it? I think it's um that you can sort of say well there's religious decline therefore religion isn't important to people and of course religion is incredibly important to people it's enmeshed in their identities most of the world is globally religious (laughs) most of the most of the world is religious it matters it shapes meaning and so um, it, it, the danger is if you start to say that there's religious decline and people aren't interested in religion, that, that you start to make excuses for lack of religious literacy and lack of religious understanding at a time when arguably we need religious literacy more.
1: Uh, yeah, You say we need religious um, literacy more. I mean, how, how, what would you say, I mean, uh, if um, this decline, how do you think this decline in faith uh, affects individuals and communities?
2: I think, I mean, there's always been changes in religion and religion is always shifting. I think the reason that certainly when it comes to Christianity, um, people are perhaps not identifying as Christian anymore, or we've seen a huge increase in people identifying as not having a religion, as having no religion and seeing that as a positive identity. Um, the um, th- so you can sort of feel that religion is becoming sort of marginalised and um, when it when it impacts um, religious communities in that way there could be a response to be quite defensive and it's the way in which that narrative can then be used which I think we need to keep an eye on. But um, um, when we sort of think about how, um, so it, there might be that concern and there might be that defensiveness but you know religion and, and faith has always changed. It's always been changing. And people have always found meaning in lots of different places. So I think what we're seeing with uh, this move away from institutional religion is people understanding that they can find their moral compass their values um, community identity the sacred in fact actually uh, in 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 places outside of their uh, outside of traditional institutions some of my research has looked at how women use literature and poetry for example rather than the rather than the biblical text as a way to understand their spiritual identities and practices um, I think there's lots of different ways in which that impacts.
1: But, but what I was really trying to get at was that do you think that, that the decline in faith is going to be harmful to our societies and communities?
2: So uh, I sort of goes back to what I just said. There can be a moral panic. A little. We sometimes see this in headlines, don't you? You know. Um, um, Christ, you know, religion. Um, Britain is no longer a Christian country, and there's a slight moral panic about that because it's uh, the association is is that there isn't religious, there isn't cohesion in communities, and there isn't uh, a moral compass. That's not that's not the case. Um, people find meaning and find ways to communicate and to and to and to build community outside of religious institutions as well as within them. This isn't an either or. I think these things are happening together.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, uh, my colleague has a few questions, if you don't mind answering them as well.
2: Sure, I'll try. Yeah,
0: good morning, uh, <laughs> morning, Professor Dawn. Uh, I hope the lines incre- uh, in- improved. Has. yes.
2: Thank you.
0: Um, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, looking at faith in general, you, you've talked a lot about it. Um, but if we look at the last few decades, do you think faith has uh, changed over time?
2: Yes, there has always, I mean, um, people's understanding of faith and then how faith is outworked and practiced is, is in constant motion. Um, people have always adapted rituals, prayers, practices, uh, their interpretation of the sacred text. It's an ongoing conversation. I think there is the perception uh, more recently that faith doesn't matter, that it might not be important. I think one of the crucial ways in which it's changed, and, and this happens to me, you know, when I'm in a taxi or going to the station, or I'm or I'm out and about, and 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 you know, we're getting to a conversation with someone about the importance of religion, and they'll say, well, it's just not as important as it used to be. So I think there's a, a perception that. Uh, religion isn't important to a lot of people. And I think we have to sort of, you know, when when I'm asked that in a taxi or on the train, I often say, well, religion is still really important to people. It might not just look and sound and taste the way that you think religion sounds and tastes (laughs) and looks. And so one of my jobs as someone who studies religion is to look for those places where people are understanding what the sacred means to them and thinking through about what that means for themselves, for their families and for their communities.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much for that. And what do you see as the potential benefits and challenges of religious decline in modern society?
2: I think it's I think it's more interesting, I suppose, rather than to think about the benefits and the you know, and the advantages and the disadvantages, is to just like I said earlier, just to keep track of how this uh, apparent perception that religion is religion is in decline is, is is being used. So I I get a little bit worried when I see uh that narrative being used to sort of defend uh migration policies, for example, or to um to sort of say, you know, the UK isn't a Christian country anymore and that's a problem. It's not a problem. So I worry, I, I sort of that that I worry about that when I see those narratives being used in harmful, prejudicial ways. I worry when it, how it might affect policy makers who think that religion isn't important anymore uh, and what that might mean for religious communities. And I think communities themselves, they might be concerned about shrinking numbers, other religions and other religious expressions and spiritualities, um, you know, are, are growing. So paganism has been on the increase. The humanists have seen more numbers. And the last census, people identifying as shaman went up from about 650 to 8,000. And um, I, think, I think my students love talking about this, actually. They love talking about what our religious diversity in the UK means for things like some of our institutions. Such as how we go about teaching religious education. At the moment, most of the curriculum is is focused on Christianity and one other religion. But if we're in a much more, uh, if 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 we know that there are more people identifying as no religion or as shaman or as pagan, then maybe our curriculum should reflect that. And my students love debating things like the House of Lords and the bishops, uh, the bishops and the House of Lords. So, what does representation mean uh, in our legislation? if we live in a very diverse religious society where, arguably, people are also finding meaning in the sacred outside of those institutions.
0: Thank you. Um, and I want to ask you, how can religious leaders and institutions contribute positively addressing the spiritual needs of a changing and more secular society?
2: I think that goes back a little bit to the discussion I had with your colleagues. This is, when I think about the good, good practice, um, you know, I think about people like chaplains who are working across diverse religious communities, and communities, uh, and people who have no religion in secular institutions, and so they're living out their faith lives and their ministry and their vocation in ways that are trying to serve the needs of the community. I think, I think that's, I think that's where I think of good religious leadership and good religious practice.
0: And, and I think just lastly, before the, I do let you go as well, when we do look at uh, mainstream media, do mm. you think they mainly focus on promoting irreligious material over ethical, moral morals and matters of value?
2: That's a, that's a great question. I think it depends on the media institution, for sure. Obviously, I think we know that. I think we know we, we have to think carefully about what the agenda might be behind some of those headlines. But the media can have a really positive effect uh, on on sharing religious knowledge. When we think about religious decline and the fact that it might be due to generational change, certainly what we're seeing uh, in in Generation Z is a uh, use of media uh, being quite a positive tool for for finding and being engaged in religious knowledge. So, this although Generation Z seem to be Sort of quite benign about religion. It's not in the water in the same way that it used to be. Uh, I was talking to one of my colleagues at the University of Leeds, Dr. Jav Singh, and he was saying that he thought the inc- one of the reasons for the increase in Sikhi identity in the last census was because on, there's an on a really online uh, transmission of religious knowledge, and uh, it is it is social media that is exposing people to different religious ideas and if uh, it might, that might well lead to a positive identity um, around religion. And we've seen this with, um, when you speak to uh, young women in particular who are interested in paganism or Wicca, they often get a lot of their religious knowledge, uh, their, their knowledge about about pagan Wiccan from, from television and from social media. And so it can often be a useful way in and a way of positively identifying with a particular religious or spiritual or no religious tradition.
0: Great. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Dawn, Associate Professor of Religion and Gender, Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Chester. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
2: Thank you very much for having me. Hope to speak to you soon. Bye now.
0: Thank you. Bye. Bye. 02086877878. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch. with Someone actually messaged me the last question.
1: I see. Okay. So we have other listeners who are interested in the conversation. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, okay.
0: It's, it's it's quite interesting. <clears throat> she mentioned one one point during her interview that uh, some people perceive that maybe the Christian church is behind certain religious values and maybe people feel that uh, you know they are not being addressed. Um so that could be one reason for the decline as well but it's interesting to note that uh, the the figures vary uh, for some religion as she mentioned uh, some religion are, are doing well they they are increasing in number whereas if we look at uh, other statistics some are declining as well
1: mm-hmm.
0: so um before we do get into the islamic analysis of of this particular um segment I wanted to just read out a few few more figures uh, of what we have um, so what does the latest census really tell us about the state of religion in Britain uh, so one third of state schools in Britain are faith schools and all state schools must by law hold daily acts of Christian collective worship um, and over a period of 16 years uh, you know, the, the writer says that I've been able to speak to over sorry, 18 hundred sorry, 18,000 school children regarding the basic, uh, teachings of Islam. And in doing so, I usually relate to them the prophets of God, such as Moses, Prophet Muhammad. Uh, and when I ask them, um, about the Ten Commandments, very few children are able to identify Moses as the answer. Uh, so those who 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 do are usually from the Catholic faith. Uh, so we'll we'll discuss this discussion more further after the news. But uh, for now, here is the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording, and lines are now closed.
1: Peace be upon you. Good morning. Uh, welcome back to the broadcast of the Voice of Islam. Uh, the time is uh, just approaching five minutes past eight. It's Friday, the 13th of October, 2023. Before the break, we were discussing the uh, topic about uh, the decline of religion in this country. Uh, and we were talking to Dr. Don uh, Llewellyn of the University of Chester. Uh, we are now poised to give an Islamic perspective uh, to this topic. And over to uh, Imam Toki for
0: that. Yes, thank you. For, thank you for that. Uh, so we we were just looking at uh, some of the figures, which were looking at uh, the schools, and uh, it showed <laughs> that uh, even in uh, a lot of the public schools, um, you know, a lot of the children, if it's not faith schools, then in terms of uh, you know the Christianity as well, um, a lot of the young students they they are not aware. Of, uh, of you know, some of the basic questions, such as the Ten Commandments. Um, and uh, the, the writer, he further says that as far as Christianity is concerned, Jesus Christ was asked by an expert in law that expert in law, that uh, teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? and Jesus replied, that what is written in law do you read it he answered that love the lord of your god with your all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind love your neighbor as yourself and jesus said that you have answered correctly do this and you will live so this is the very basic message and advice that all prophets gave to their people Firstly, um, is to believe and worship the one God and secondly, to do good to your neighbors as you would like to do good to you. And in a nutshell, if, the, if people sincerely followed this advice, the troubles surrounding the world will disappear and as Jesus said that you will live, that is, live in peace and, and harmony. What's interesting is that when we go a couple of years back, and we were in the pandemic as well, we were going through the COVID pandemic, and usually people um, or figures usually showed that people moved more towards religion at that time. Um, so it, what we see from uh, uh, from from different uh, that when whenever um, you know people go through troubling time or difficult time, generally more and more people turn towards religion as this is what human nature is, that uh, during our difficult time um, we incline or or we, we look for an answer and we pray towards God. But when Allah the Almighty, He blesses the particular individual um, or when the individual is at ease, then the individual himself then moves away from God. And uh, as as a Muslim as well, uh, the universal teaching of Islam, uh, which, uh, which are for all times, has played a major role um, in this. And perhaps it is because Islamic teachings are not limited to mere tales of the past, uh, nor are they in contradiction with science and logic. And furthermore, if we look at 570 years after the demise of Jesus, God Almighty he, he promised in the scriptures and raised another law bearing prophet, who the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and he was sent for the whole of mankind and not just any particular nation or people. And although He was given the final laws and commandments which were formed into the Holy Quran and his basic message and advice to the people of the world was the same as other prophets. For instance, we read in the Holy Quran, And worship Allah and associate not with Him and show kindness to parents and to the kindred and orphans and the needy. And to the neighbor that is a kinsman, and the neighbor that is a stranger, and the companion by your side, and the wayfarer, and those whom your right hand possesses. Surely Allah loves not the proud and the boastful. So the, the Holy Quran enjoins that a Muslim to make his uh, kindness so comprehensive as to include in its scope the whole of mankind from parents who are the nearest and to the stranger who are the furthest um, and a person who does not carry out this divine commandments contained in this verse is commandment as proud and boastful because instead of doing good to others and being kind to them he looks down upon them and behaves arrogantly and the very act of abstaining from being kind to one's fellow human beings whether relations or neighbours or strangers, it is an act of pride, it, pride condemned by Islam and unfortunately when people, when they turn away from God and his prophets, they follow a path that ultimately leads to destruction. And at this moment in time, the population of the world is in a precarious position in that immorality, corruption, mental illness, persecution, injustice, deadly wars to name a few are predominant and in this day and age it appears that some of the world leaders have little or no faith in God and because they hold great power they arrogantly believe that they can inflict pain and suffering intentionally or unintentionally on their fellow human beings without precautions or accountability. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, through inference, that the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, was to appear at the start of Islam's 14th century. And Jesus came at the beginning of the 14th century after Moses, and the founder of the Amdi Muslim community in Islam, which, which you know we belong to, was established in 1889 by the Hazrat Mazar Ghulam Ahmad, who appeared at the beginning of Islam's 14th century and Hazrat Ghulam he later claimed to be the long awaited Messiah and the promised Messiah who was subservient to the Holy Prophet peace be upon him Jesus peace be upon him the Messiah and was to was to Prophet Moses and like all prophets he brought the same divine message to bring people back to the recognition of God and to establish Peace and good with all of mankind, and after the demise, after his demise in 1908, the system of khilafat successorship was established, and the present caliph, uh, His Holiness Azam, Azam, he is the fifth caliph of the amdi Muslim Community, elected uh, to his lifelong position. Um, on the 22nd of April 2003. And he serves as the worldwide head, spiritual head and administrative head of an international religious organization with membership exceeding tens of millions across 200 nations and territories. And many people are openly and silently wishing for someone to lead them to a state of peace and trust, someone to be totally honest and truthful, and who dispense justice to all without fear or favour, and this is this is not an this, this is not a utopian um, wish as this person, His Holiness, uh, at this moment in time resides in the UK, and His Holiness is the world's leading Muslim figure promoting peace and interreligious harmony, and through his sermons his lectures, his books, his personal meetings. Uh, his Holiness has a continually advocated the worship of God Almighty and serves humanity. And he continually advocates for the establishment of universal human rights and a just society and a separation of religion and state. So in in a nutshell, um, we, we see that uh, the main point to highlight in this was that just as we look at the time of Moses, peace be upon him, it was after it was after fourteen hundred years after Moses that God Almighty had ordained that He would send a subordinate prophet, um, Jesus, peace be upon him, to then revive Christianity at that time. Similarly, if we look at Islam as well. Allah the Almighty, uh, you know, through His own law, He had sent the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, 1,400 years after uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, to revive Islam as well at a time where we see that Islam was very weak and in British India, where Islam was being attacked on all four sides, um, and Christianity was spreading in in, in in British India. It was at that time that Allah the Almighty had sent um, the Promised Messiah to to protect and safeguard Islam. And uh, we know from some of his works, such as Brian Ahmadiyya, when he first published it, many people praised his work as well um, at that time. And even uh, one of his fierce opponents, Muhammad Sen Batalvi, who later uh, became... Um, one of his very much fier- fierce opponents. But at that time, he even in, in one of his uh, newspapers, Ishaat al-Sunnah, he praised the promised Messiah for his great work. And uh, uh, so so this is what we see that uh, Allah the Almighty, he, uh, he always protects, um, you know, his... Uh, he guides people on on uh, on the, on the right path, and at a time where Islam was fragile as well, Allah the Almighty he sent the promised Messiah to to revive its teachings, and this is in line with uh, what Allah the Almighty has mentioned in the Holy Quran that inna Nahnu zikra wa inna lahu la that He is the one who has sent down the the zikr, the referring to the Holy Book, but He Himself will be His guardian, and one of the interpretation of this verse as well that he will continue to send not only prophets but also saints and those people who saints of Allah the Almighty who will protect the interpretation of these verses as well and similarly we we say that it was the promised Messiah peace be upon him as well who gave such interpretation that he protected um the Holy Quran as well from different other uh, interpretation as well that other scholars had made at that time. Uh, So I think with that, uh, we can close this particular uh, Islamic perspective and then uh, I'll give the mic to you, Brother Waleed, to start us off with the second segment.
1: Yes, thank you very much for that. Uh, Very enlightening and uh, very interesting. Thank you very much for that contribution. Looking at the next uh, topic, the second of our main topics, um, it is regarding addiction. Um, And the title of this particular subject is Dopamine Rush, Exploring the Neurobiology of Addiction, something that we picked up from the Al-Hakam newspaper, or is it the uh, website? And uh, what it uh, essentially says, if I can give the overview of this, is that addictive behaviors are now well established in society and are the root cause of a myriad of disorders. Addictions can be commonly misunderstood to mean only addiction to drugs or alcohol, otherwise known as substance addiction. However, the World Health Organization uh, now categorizes uh, gaming and gambling as disorders. In the international classification of diseases Uh, endorsed for release by the World Health Organization in 2019, the uh, World Health Organization defined these addictions as disorders. Um, And I quote, based on similarities in uh, symptomology, uh, epidemiology and neurobiology, gaming disorder and gambling disorder are categorized as disorders due to addictive behaviors. Um, Now uh, in the modern world, addictions can range from substance addictions, uh, including alcohol and drug abuse, such as uh, cocaine and um, methamphetamine, uh, to behavioral addictions, such as uh, digital gaming, viewing, pornography, gambling, or even extensive mobile phone use. Uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman. Uh, beautifully defines addiction as a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. Uh, essentially, one becomes numb to anything else in life other than the addiction, which has become the sole source of their ple- of their pleasure. Uh, if not controlled, addictions can be detrimental to our dopamine um, brain circuits. In our brains, we have the mesocorticocolimbic uh, cortic- uh, pathway which is sometimes referred to as the reward pathway as it is a dopaminergic minager- uh, pathway a pathway of neurons with dopamine as a neuromodulation modulator it is responsible for motiv- motivation reward related behavior and attention when we are seeking to uh, task That, uh, in uh, turn, will increase our dopamine levels. Our dopamine levels initially increase with the idea of pursuing this task. For example, if one is thinking of uh, going to eat a specific cuisine, they highly enjoy the dopamine levels will go up uh, steadily when the thought initially comes. From this rise until the action is performed, the dopamine drops towards the baseline. This drop will make the individual want and crave that dish. Once they have eaten the dish, the dopamine levels increase in proportion to how fulfilling and pleasurable the experience was. Dopamine levels increase, causing joy and euphoria if the dish is not as good as hoped for. The dopamine levels drop, thus causing low mood. When an addiction uh, initially starts, the individual gains a lot of pleasure from it. Later on, when experiencing subsequent dopamine hits, their perception of pleasure will eventually narrow to that thing to which they are addicted. Consequently, their interest and motivation in everyday tasks such as schoolwork and normal hobbies diminish. If the addiction comes on long enough, they will uh, also eventually lose the dopamine hit that uh, they're addicted to. The neurobiology behind this will be of great um, uh, assistance in exploring this further. The brain circuit uh, physiology is increb- incredibly important when talking about addictions. If a person is addicted to a substance or a behavior act, The pursuit of that task which results in dopamine spike is analysed and learned by the uh, colimbic pathway the mesocortico-limbic pathway eventually memorizes that pursuit for the dopamine spike and stores it. For example, if a person is addicted to a substance that causes a a dramatic uh, peak in dopamine, the steps performed to hit that dopamine peak are very short. Eventually, after performing that act many times, the brain circuit, and thus, your main brain uh, reward um, uh, pathway becomes hardwired into thinking that the easiest way to access dopamine is via that act. The brain will now no longer be used to long, grueling hours of writing an essay, performing physical activity or studying long hours. In a nutshell, it will not understand the concept of delayed gratification at all. The brain now only wants the quick dopamine spike from the easy route. It has learned a quick fix, in other words. Another incredible point that clearly displays the vicious cycle of addiction is the example of gaming. For a person who loves gaming, the act of gaming will increase dopamine roughly three to five-fold. Now, a general rule of thumb is that the steeper and faster the dopamine spike, the steeper and deeper the drop below baseline. So after this spike, the dopamine levels plummet. The gamer then experiences melancholy, emptiness, and low motivation. As stated before, low dopamine levels naturally trigger the brain to seek an increase in dopamine. Uh, To fulfill this easy dopamine access, the gamer then turns on uh, the game again. The brain now naturally understands this to be an easy pursuit to attain a dopamine spike. Neurobiology has explained that when seeking dopamine from the same act as before, dopamine does not increase as high as it did when initially performing the task for the first time. On the other hand, it actually drops even lower than before and experiences a deeper trough. Uh, Consequently, in subsequent voyages to seek those dopamine uh, spikes, the addict will experience lower highs and even lower troughs. This vicious cycle is incredibly dangerous and is the neurobiological explanation for the vicious cycle that extreme addicts eventually enter. It becomes clear why the WHO, that's the World Health Organization, categorizes addictive behaviors as disorders. We are hoping to be speaking to um, uh, Brian Singer in a few minutes time. Uh, Brian is uh, a, a senior Uh, lecturer at the University of Sussex. Um, I believe that he is with us. Thank you very much for joining us on the on the breakfast show Dr. Singer. Hi, thanks for
3: having me.
1: Well thanks for coming on. Uh, Tell us a bit about your research regarding neurobiological uh, underpinnings of different mental health conditions including substance use and gambling because that's what we're discussing substance abuse and gambling and uh, dopamine rush and neurobiological addiction.
3: Sure, yes. Um, So my primary interests lie in the uh, intersection of neuroscience, learning, memory, and various forms of addiction. Um, So in particular, um, addictive activities like gambling or or drug use are, are never done in isolation. So there are always stimuli or cues that are present and kind of become associated with the activity so for example you might have for gambling you might have a fruit machine or a slot machine in the casino and those machines often have various auditory or visual signals that you know come up on the display or can be heard and over time these signals can um, become associated with the potential for reward um, even subconsciously and kind of uh, uh, instigate individuals to gamble uh, and the same can be said with different uh, drug-related cues or stimuli. So my research in general looks at um, if some people are more motivated by these cues, these stimuli than others, this might be an indication of vulnerability or susceptibility and how the brain might encode these signals um, to uh, result in a different uh, expression of behaviors including addiction um, and so most of my work is on uh, dopamine and uh, other uh, molecules in the brain and how that works.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about dopamine in our introduction as well. Can you tell mm-hmm. us, I don't know whether we explained it uh, as well as you would be able mm-hmm. to, can you tell us about how dopamine affects our bodies and its effect on addictive behavior?
3: Sure, so just to take a step back for, for a second. So our brains have about 170 billion cells. Um, about 85 billion of those are called neurons. Neurons are uh, cells in the brain uh, that use electrical or chemical messages to talk to one another. And those messages are called neurotransmitters. Dopamine is a type of neurotransmitter. Um, and you can find it in very specific uh, regions of the brain. So it tends to be kind of uh, uh, the cells that produce it, um, their main bodies, I guess, are located further back in the brain, uh, kind of towards our necks. Um, and then they, they send these long kind of projections to other areas of the brain. Um, um, and in these other areas of the brain, um, it helps us to regulate voluntary movement Um, dopamine is implicated in Parkinson's disease for example Uh, dopamine also helps to uh, regulate learning and memory um, as well as um, motivation so um, these latter two are are very important I think to understanding addiction
1: okay and um, is it is it one of those uh, transmitters that make makes us feel good Um, Like serotonin is serotonin also a neurotransmitter?
3: Uh, Yes, so that that that's correct about serotonin. So Uh serotonin is a neurotransmitter that um, um, uh, its levels are either directly or indirectly, I should say, uh, impacted by um, medications like antidepressants. With antidepressants. initially cause uh, increased levels of serotonin in certain brain areas to kind of facilitate uh, communication. Um, over time, there might be other changes uh, that that uh, relate to these high levels of serotonin, for example, in gene expression and things like that to kind of help support change in the brain to maybe decrease uh, things like depression. And it, it is important to talk about serotonin and other neurotransmitters in addition to dopamine because addiction usually doesn't happen in, in isolation there are oftentimes these comorbidities um, that occur meaning that an individual might have multiple conditions so uh, they might be depressed and have an addiction they might have uh, or schizophrenia and have an addiction so there, there's a lot of a relationship there Um, And so that actually makes addiction very hard to treat because what are you treating? Are you treating the addiction? Are you treating the the other condition? Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the other other, uh, point about dopamine, um, so I would say that dopamine is actually not a pleasure molecule per se. um, And there are other neurotransmitters in the brain um, like opioids um, which Kind of are more related to pleasure. Um, what dopamine is seems to be doing is it helps us learn about rewards events. So it helps us learn about that flashing light in the casino that might predict reward. Um, and it dopamine is kind of more of a, a motivational signal. It high levels of dopamine might cause us want or desire a reward, um, and that can become aberrant, um, that we want to desire something over, you know, other sort of important goals that we have. Um, but you know, in an addiction, you know, an individual might want something, but they still might not, they they may no, no longer get pleasure for it. They may no longer like the activity or the drug. Uh, so that liking, which happens in slightly different cells in the brain, um, through that neurotransmitter, uh different types of opioid neurotransmitters is slightly different and slightly... um, um, It goes along with uh, dopamine signaling in the brain sometimes, but the two can be kind of separated in terms of this wanting versus liking. Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, the relationship between dopamine and and addiction, is that what it is then? That it basically is a factor in... um, influencing desire or reward motivation
3: yes so um so there 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 are a few things i think that are are important to consider um so with repeated exposure to a um a drug or maybe gambling related stimuli and, and this is a bit of a controversial topic because some people have different opinions on it but um At least in my belief that that dopamine levels get increased over time so you know a single infusion of a drug might cause a little bit of dopamine release in certain brain areas. Um, One brain area being the ventral striatum Um, but if you repeatedly take a drug over and over and over again the ability of that drug to increase dopamine levels um, might be enhanced in these brain areas. And so this enhancement in in dopamine levels might be related to this, you know, excessive desire, excessive want for a drug. And that can be, you know, related to addiction. Um, and you know, similar things are thought to happen with, with gambling disorder. Um, even though you don't have, um, some of the acute effects of ingesting a substance on, uh, on your body. Um, I will say also, you know, there are different brain areas that are important to, uh, addiction. So, um, over time, this increase in level of dopamine might shift from these more kind of wanting areas of the brain to areas of the brain like the dorsal striatum, which are more engaged in habitual activity. So, causing um, behavior to be kind of automatic and inflexible. So, it might be that you know, you know, addiction changes over time in terms of. The psychology of it, from something that's, you know, related to purely want and purely liking, maybe, uh, to to something that's very habitual and uncontrollable.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about this uh, from a biological variation standpoint, why do you think that certain people are more susceptible to addiction than others? Does dopamine? Operate in a different manner in those kind of individuals, or is there some other factor?
3: Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, I think there are multiple factors, um, um, going on. I think, you know, from my own research, it seems that, um, there might be slightly different, um, ways dopamine could function across individuals, we're, we're, we're investigating that more. Um, so for example, um, In some individuals uh, see a a cue paired with a drug or a cue or a stimuli paired with gambling uh, uh, experience, they might get this big dopamine rush in their brain in response to that cue. But other people might not get that big dopamine rush in response to that cue. So you know, there is individual variation in that cue's ability to kind of motivate people. Um, But there are other things beyond dopamine as well. Um, So, uh, as I said before, there are a lot of comorbidities between different uh, mental health conditions, especially depression, for example, like depression and gambling. People might take these drugs to self-medicate. There are genetic components as well, which may or may not be related to dopamine in the brain. Um, Alcohol use disorder, for example, uh tends to run in families um there are also social conditions that can influence um uh drug use and gambling so early life experiences like trauma and bullying social conditions like isolation and stress as well as uh peer pressure which you you um often hear about in
4: schools
1: mm, yeah yeah uh, now, you mentioned the central striatum. I mean, how is the brain affected by addiction? What part of the brain is triggered by uh, by addiction?
3: Right. So, um, so, I talked about the, the striatum. Um, there's kind of two parts of it. Um, there's the ventral striatum, and an important area in the ventral striatum is the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens receives uh, dopamine input, um, and there is also the dorsal striatum, which is kind of higher up in the brain. Um, so, dopamine level in terms of addiction, you know, might increase over time, and increase kind of shifts over time as addiction develops from more ventral areas, so down low in the brain, like in the nucleus accumbens, to those higher up areas in the brain, like in the dorsal striatum, and that. Kind of is thought to mirror this kind of spiraling effect through these circuits is thought to mirror this kind of transition from you know initial drug experimentation to really habitual drug seeking and taking um, but again it's not just dopamine uh, and it's not just these specific brain areas um, uh, emotion for example is very important to uh, persistence in drug taking, um, and you know, areas of the brain like the amygdala, they send information to the striatum. Um, also, decision making um, and choice behavior, whether a person chooses to use one drug or another or chooses uh, to, use, uh, to gamble, um, that might be very much regulated by um, an area called the prefrontal cortex, which is right in the front of our brain. Uh, 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 kind of on top, I guess. Um, And that area kind of helps with decision-making and and flexibility as well, and it sends uh, information to the strategy.
1: And uh, how recent advances in neurosciences and technology impacted on our understanding of addiction and mental health disorders?
5: Yeah, so...
3: um, Mm. I I think there are several things um, that have come about in in the uh, last few years. And a lot of these are, um, I think, more psychological therapies that have been developed in terms of uh, based on how we understand how cues uh, impact neurobiology and um, desire to take drug and gamble. Um, So, for example, um, we can kind of replicate some of these cues in uh, a virtual reality context Um, and it's sort of like an exposure therapy, exposing individuals to drug or gambling related cues, um, but without the reward and maybe that will kind of help to desensitize people to those cues so those cues don't instigate maybe relapse to drug use. Um, Also sort of on on the line of cues, there's uh, um, things called ecological momentary intervention, which, you know, often uses smartphones and things like that um, to kind of give people alerts, maybe, you know, if if those individuals are tracked with GPS, and give them alerts if they're, you know, nearby that pub or nearby that gambling establishment to kind of decrease their desire uh, uh, to use drugs. So maybe just, you know, a a healthy reminder for those individuals to stay sober. there are medications that are being trialed, um, for, um, addiction. Um, and some of these medications are also being trialed for, um, you know, anxiety disorders and depressions as well, because again, there's a lot of overlap there in terms of the neurobiology that underlies these um, conditions. So for example, um, at, at Sussex there, I think, um, there will be some, uh, uh, Study is looking at um, whether ketamine uh, use could, uh, uh, in a controlled setting, uh, could help people with uh, uh, an addiction, or maybe in other places in the UK, uh, people are looking at psilocybin, which is a chemical in uh, I guess magic mushrooms. And yes, ketamine and psilocybin are drugs, um, and they can be misused in some ways, but it's the recent ideas are that maybe in a very controlled sort of environment when using combination therapy, they can kind of change people's perceptions of their behavior and kind of be guided into thinking about their behavior and their addiction in a a more healthy type of way, um, which um, um, could help them um, kind of resist cues and resist urges addiction. Um, There are other things that are uh, being trialed as well. Meditation, uh, uh, perhaps deep brain stimulation to change some neural activity within the brain and things like that.
1: Great thanks very much uh, Dr. Singer. I mean it's uh, been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for your very informative uh, contribution. We've certainly been able to understand this subject a bit little better than uh, before we started talking to you. So something, thank, thank you very much for coming on.
3: Great. Thanks for having me.
1: Great. Uh, and and uh, all the best in the future. Thank in you. Future. Bye. Imam we it's over to you now. Uh, what uh, do we have in store from an Islamic perspective?
0: <laughs> yes. So uh, drugs uh, are forbidden uh, because they are harmful to people. And Islam, it uh, says that anything harmful which takes one away from pity is forbidden. And in in the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, previously people used to drink alcohol at that time. But uh, this prevented them from saying their prayers properly. As they were intoxicated and hence, uh, later on during the time of the Prophet, it became forbidden. And some people say that why cigarettes are not banned like other drugs such as cannabis. However, uh, Azam Zaghullah Ahmed, peace be upon him, the Promised Messiah and the f- founder of the Amdi Muslim he has said that although cigarettes are not forbidden, if they had existed at the time of the Holy Prophet, they would have been preferred forbidden. And now we see that with cigarettes, people have realized the ill effects and uh, there are clear warning labels on cigarette packets, um, you know, cancer, lung diseases, and similar harmful effects linked to smoking cigarettes are all known. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he has also famously stated that one who drinks alcohol the one who supplies alcohol to drink the one who prepares alcohol and the one who stores alcohol and the one who sells it are hellbound and so so um so so this is uh, what the holy prophet peace be upon him said that anyone who deals with alcohol or, you know, even sells it, even in that sort of position, it, it's God Almighty forbids that particular person. So um, even when it comes to um, someone who is working in a store, particularly dealing with wine or alcohol, he, he should, um, you know, if, if the person is Muslim, then ideally not work there or, uh, work in a different area where they are not selling alcohol. Um, <clears throat> also, if we look at the Holy Quran, if we look at chapter 2, verse 222, Allah the Almighty says that they asked thee concerning wine and the game of Hazard. Say in both there is great sin and also some advantages for men, but their sin is greater than their advantage. And they ask thee what they should spend. Say what you can spare. Thus Allah does not make His commandments clear to you that you may reflect. Um, so here the the Holy Quran it's clearly highlighting <coughs> that <coughs> in a, in both there is <coughs> great sin and but also uh, the the Holy Quran. Highlights some of the uh, some of the medicinal advantages of alcohol as well, but <clears throat> generally, alcohol itself is or any intoxicant is forbidden. And uh, in another hadith, in another narration of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him, Abdullah bin Umar he said that every intoxicant is unlawful, and whatever causes intoxication. In large amounts, a small amount, or a small amount is also unlawful. And uh, finally, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he's also mentioned on uh, this topic of addiction. He's written at one place, <clears throat> and he quotes, and he, and he says that. All those wealthy persons who consume alcohol also carry the the sins of people who intoxicate themselves under their influence. You who claim to possess understanding know that this world is not eternal. So take hold of yourself and issue all immoderate and abstain from every type of intoxicant. It is not alcohol alone that ruins a person, but also opium, ganja, chars, bhang, thari, and all other addictions are similarly destructive and they ruin the mind and they destroy lives. So shun all such substances and I cannot understand why one would choose to indulge in these intoxicants when year on year they claim the lives of thousands of addicts not to mention the torment of the hereafter. So a very beautiful and powerful statement of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him as well, that he highlights that, uh, you know, he, we look at year after year that they, you know, take the lives of thousands of people. So what a believer should take heed of this and really abstain from <clears throat> any forms of addiction. And even uh, when it comes to the topic of addiction as well, <clears throat> Brother walid there's also f- phone addiction now as well. That's yes. spending too much time <clears throat> on phone, on uh, even on uh, <clears throat> social media. So there's all different uh, types of addictions as well. And <clears throat> as as a Muslim, we should abstain from that.
4: Mm.
0: We do have some clips to play uh, for our guests and uh, one such one first clip we have is on the prohibition of alcohol and this is from the program faith matters so we're just going to listen into this now
5: um i'd like to just very quickly touch upon a question that was raised a few weeks ago that we didn't actually get a chance to dis- discuss it in uh, and touch upon and and the questioner raised a question about why is the consumption of pork prohibited in islam uh, but they also asked why is the consumption of alcohol prohibited in islam and you know what is the wisdom of the teaching behind that as well? Perhaps the panel could shed some light very quickly because we, we only have a few minutes left on, on on the teachings of that.
6: Well, some people in that I mean, just uh, I take that in that aspect. Some people sometimes argue that uh, there are good points in uh, alcoholic drinks. All that, the Holy Quran has taken this one. It has been mentioned as some of the uh, uh, impure things introduced by Satan. Ridzumi namlis and then uh, the Holy Quran has also mentioned that uh, the good points, they are far more than, the, uh, I mean, than the, uh, the verse of the Holy Quran says that there are some good points in it and some uh, harms in there. And the harms are much more than any possible so the, good point. They outweigh, the good, they, outweigh they outweigh the good. That. So in that case, this is a simple question of wisdom. If something is more harmful, people should abstain from that that is one of the argument and the name Khamar which has been used in the Holy Quran that is also has a meaning of covering so it covers the mind and the intellect of the person Mm. and the mental faculties are damaged as a result of excessive drinking and nobody knows when one becomes excessive drinker you know beginning is always made from a small drink Mm. and then people move forward Mm. so that's a very slippery road so Islam says the better is Mm. that people should try to abstain from that.
5: Ibrahim sir, very quickly on this point, obviously for, for, we see many in the West, although that much merriment has gained from, from drinking of alcohol, we also see how alcohol is often the source of breakdown of families and of society and it has many detrimental effects.
4: Well I mean I think Imam uh, has clearly demonstrated that its, it's, it's, it's blessings are smaller than, uh, than it's, its evil is greater and that's what you see. You, you may see uh, young people, or any person going out with the intention of having a few drinks, and many times on a daily basis, and particularly in Ireland, we're hearing this all the time: the amount of deaths, the amount of injuries, the amount, but particularly deaths of young people, four o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, who've died simply because of consuming um, alcohol. I mean, those of you who are listening to the news, one famous singer belonged to this uh, bison band who died purely on taking. Drinking too much alcohol. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it is, it is obvious. I mean, I have seen in, 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 in you know my life so far many families being destroyed just just because of alcohol. I mean, uh, the Quran, the Holy Quran, shows clearly that its its teaching is full of wisdom. That it, I mean, it is not beneficial. Doctor, mm-hmm. uh, well, well, very quickly, we have a couple the, of minutes. Uh, the Holy
6: Prophet has said that liquor is the mother of all vice and the greatest of sins. And if you want to see a practical example of that, visit any accident and emergency department over a Friday, Saturday or Sunday or any police station on a Friday, Saturday or Sunday and you will see a pictorial example of the damaging effect it has on health and on society as general and the lawlessness that it uh, emanates from there is there to be seen. So correctly uh, this backs up the hadith of the Holy Prophet sallam, and he has said that liquor is the mother of all wives and leads to I all other things. These police people have understood this message of yes. Islam very <laughs> Yes, Because so. they have made a rule that drink and drive is a crime. That's <laughs> right. And yeah. They are trying their very best. Yes. Yeah. they are trying yeah, their and This is a good thing, you know. Yeah. So that speaks volumes, you know, mm. just this principle. Mm. Why they have come to this conclusion? Because they know for certain that a lot of accidents, a mm. lot of uh, loss mm. of life, Will be the result of training.
5: Jazakallah, Imam Sab. And Jazakallah, the panel. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but Jazakallah, for the many questions we'll be able to answer today, there are many questions left, but hopefully we'll be able to challenge those in 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 further programs. Jazakallah um, to you, the viewers, for joining us. Um, as I said before, this program is meant. For
0: so that was uh, <clears throat> a short clip from Faith Matters on the, the alcohol as well. And as. Um, the panelist uh, from the discussion as um <clears throat> uh they mentioned that the word if we look at hammer as well the root word is that it uh, something which uh, you know it 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 alters your decision making skills as well so um it has an effect on you so you know uh, that's some for some of the harmful effects of alcohol as well. We do have a, another clip for us as well uh, for, from the studio, and this is on the question on how to, how can one deviate from sins uh, he is addicted to. Um, so this is a question which was asked to His Holiness Hazim Zamsur which he has answered. So we're just going to be listening into that now.
3: My question is, how can one deviate from sins that one is addicted to?
7: First thing is that you pray to Allah in your five daily prayers that Allah Ta'ala save you from all the satanic attacks on certain things, right? You see, we are surrounded by so many bad things in the present day world. Even today, internet television and other social media is actually attracting us in a way which is not the right way. Quite a number of programs shown on the television or they're available on internet and social media are actually trying to deviate us from the right path from the true teachings of Islam, and because of the, the lust and charm, we are attracted towards these things. So the first thing is that seek Allah's help. Only Allah can save us from Satan. This is why we say A'udhu billahi huh? Allah Ta'ala save us from the Satan, the accursed. Then, in the five daily prayer, you fervently pray for yourself that Allah saves you, for for your siblings, for your family members, for the Jamaat members. And this is how you can broaden your prayers so that you can not only be saving yourself, but your atmosphere as well, your environment as well. Right? Mm -hmm. Then, say istighfar make it compulsory that uh, you daily do so far as much as you can right and also also try to avoid seeing the the bad programs shown on the television or available on internet or social media so this is how you can Save yourself and then at the same time try to increase your religious knowledge by reading the Quran and see the what are the commandments given in the Holy Quran. Write them down. That what you have to do and what you have to avoid and refrain yourself from those bad things. Right? Yes, sir. And also, at the same time, in the present day, Allah Ta'ala has sent the Prophet to revive the religion of Islam, to tell us the true teachings of the Qur'an and the practices of the Holy Prophet the Hadith, right? Qur'an and Hadith. So, for this, he has explained so many things in detail in his books. So whichever book is available in English, which has been translated in English, you try to read at least part of those books every day so that in this way you can increase your religious knowledge as well. So we have to work hard to save ourselves from the bad things and the sins of Today, otherwise, the attack of the Satan is to such an extent that with our only our own effort we cannot save ourselves. We have to seek Allah's guidance, Allah's help in this regard. Okay.
6: Yes, JazakAllah.
1: Um, and with that, we can uh, conclude this uh, part of the program and bring ourselves to the final uh, portion, which is to thank those people who have contributed to the preparation of this uh, broadcast. Uh, first and foremost, uh, our producer, Barira Mansoor is worthy of her gratitude, as are her researchers, Basma, Latif, and Neha. Uh mustn't forget uh, our uh, engineer in the control room beavering away making sure that everything ran smoothly. Mahmoud Shafiq, thank you to him for uh, his uh, efforts. And then uh, thank you also to our uh, guests who came on and uh, enlightened us. Uh, I would not be enlightening would not be the wrong word to use, but certainly uh, informed us uh, on uh, the subjects that we were discussing. Dr. Don Llewellyn from the University of Chester was with us uh, to lend a greater understanding to the first topic that we were discussing, which is decline in faith and belief, is there still a ray of hope? And then uh, lately we were joined by Dr. Brian Singer from the University of Sussex, and uh, he gave a very informative uh, exposition on the subject that we were discussing then, which was dopamine rush, exploring the neurobiology of addiction. So uh, thanks to all these contributors and all these people who have uh, contributed to the uh, preparation of the show. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Do join us again, seven to nine o'clock, Monday to Friday, for The Breakfast Show, is News.